Amy A. Wright was born January 6, 1972, in Salt Lake City, Utah, to Robert and Joy Anderson. She married James McConkie Wright on June 24, 1994, in the Salt Lake Temple. They have three children. Sister Wright graduated with a bachelor's degree in human development and family studies from the University of Utah in 1998. Sister Wright has a great love for little children and has spent countless hours volunteering at local schools teaching reading and writing. She has a deep and abiding love for her Savior, Jesus Christ, and experiences the healing and enabling power of His infinite and eternal sacrifice in her daily life. Sister Wright has served as the second counselor in the primary general presidency and on the Young Women General Advisory Council. Previous callings include stake and ward primary president, counselor and ward primary presidency, ward relief society presidency, gospel doctrine teacher, young women advisor, and cub scout leader. It is an absolute privilege to be here with you on this beautiful, sacred campus. Because of your consecrated, faith-filled efforts and the goodness of your hearts, we are standing on holy ground. Thank you. I would like to begin by sharing with you something that is unique to me that has impacted my life in beautiful and profound ways. I was born into a family of all boys. I even have a twin brother. I married into a family of all boys, and I am the mother of all boys. <laughs> because of this distinctive perspective, I believe that I can safely proclaim that there are very few mothers on this earth who have prayed more fervently for the noble and valiant daughters of the world. For I know when righteous men and women come together, united in the cause of Christ, there is no mountain we cannot move or at the very least climb. Many of you came today with questions, thoughts and concerns and circumstances that are weighing heavy upon your heart and your mind. I too have questions, questions and concerns about my family and friends those whom I dearly love, questions and concerns about the future. Faith-filled questions are good, questions that are filled with hope and that are founded on truth and revelation, questions that lead us to seek out the scriptures and the words of the living prophets for answers, and questions that sometimes unexpectedly take us down at the knees and cut us to the quick as we realize that we cannot stand, we cannot navigate the challenges of life without the sustaining, enabling, and purifying power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, I have always been fascinated by the rise and fall of great nations throughout the history of the world. Athens, for instance, the capital of Greece, was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Although in a state of decline by the time of the Apostle Paul's visit, 
Athens had formerly possessed more intellectual genius, philosophical wisdom, and architectural splendor than any other ancient city. Its inhabitants, even during the period of decline, prided themselves on their brilliant heritage. While visiting Athens, the Apostle Paul was invited to speak on Mars Hill. What he found was the same philosophies, pride, and absence of genuine wisdom that exists today. We read in Acts chapter 17, verse 21, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing." End quote. Paul was there to teach about Jesus Christ and His resurrection, but the Athenians chose not to listen. They were too busy doing something else. And what was the consequence of spending their time doing something else? To the Athenians, there was no epistle written. Paul did not establish a church in Athens, and whenever Paul was in the area, he did not step foot in Athens again. We don't always need to be doing bad things to stop our eternal progression. Sometimes we just need to be doing something else. The Athenians spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Did they have TikTok? Were they sharing cat videos? What were they doing? What was so important in their lives that they couldn't stop, listen, and heed the words of an apostle of Jesus Christ? Ask yourself, what distractions do I have in my life that are taking me away from that which is essential? What are my unknown gods? that keep me from worshiping the one and only true God? To answer these questions, it is important that we know where these distractions are coming from. Who is behind all of this? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul gives us unique insight into the source of our distractions. Wherein in the time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience." End quote. Did you catch that? Paul referred to the adversary as the prince of the power of the air. Our family had the opportunity to walk the beautiful mosaic tile paths of Ephesus when our children were young. And I often wondered what this scripture meant to the Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air. I can tell you what I think it means to us today. In these last days, Lucifer has enormous influence in the air. He is infecting homes and minds and hearts through the air, through Wi-Fi, using all kinds of technology, most specifically, smartphones. Truly, one of his greatest influences, his greatest power and potential for harm, is found in the air. I invite you to think about that for a moment and ponder what Paul's words mean for you in your life. 
I believe that it is very compelling that almost as a voice of warning, Google's former design ethicist and co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology, Tristan Harris, stated, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product, end quote. Scary, isn't it? It has been prophesied that in the last days, the world will be scary, but not for the righteous. Jesus Christ himself declared, if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. You may find yourself asking, however, what is it exactly that we need to prepare for? That is a great question. If you want to know what the world is going to be like right before the Savior comes again, we simply need to read about what the world was like right before he came and visited the people in ancient America. Follow along with me in 3 Nephi chapters 6 and 7 as together we learn what the world is going to be like in the last days. Beginning in chapter 6, there were disputings among the people. They were lifted up unto pride and boastings because of their exceedingly great riches. The people began to be distinguished by ranks according to their riches and their chances for learning. There became a great inequality in all the land, insomuch that the church began to be broken up. Satan had great power unto the stirring up of the people to do all manner of iniquity and to the puffing them up with pride, tempting them to seek for power and authority and riches and the vain things of the world. Satan did lead away the hearts of the people to do all manner of iniquity. They were carried about by the temptations of the devil whithersoever he desired to carry them. They were in a state of awful wickedness, they did not sin ignorantly. They did willfully rebel against God. There were judges who had condemned the prophets of the Lord unto death, not according to the law. They did enter into a covenant one with another, which covenant was given and administered by the devil to combine against all righteousness. They did combine against the people of the Lord and enter into a covenant to destroy them and to deliver those who were guilty of murder from the grasps of justice. They did set at defiance the law and the rights of their country, and they did covenant one with another to destroy the governor and to establish a king over the land, that the land should no more be at liberty, but should be subject unto kings. Then in chapter 7, and the people were divided one against another, and they did separate one from another into tribes. They did yield themselves unto the power of Satan. They did cause a great contention in the land. And thus six years had not passed away since the more part of the people had turned from their righteousness, like the dog to his vomit, or like the sow to her wallowing in the mire. They were appointed a king. He was one of the chiefest who had, been, who had given his voice against the prophets who testified of Jesus. They were not a righteous people. They were not united as to their laws and their manner of government, for they were established according to the minds of those who were their chiefs and their leaders. Their hearts were turned from the Lord, their God, and they did stone the prophets and did cast them out from among them. They were angry with Nephi the prophet. Does any of this sound familiar? Does this sound like our day? 
You may be asking yourself, where do I find peace and comfort? Now that I know what the last days will look like, how do I successfully navigate the challenging times, these challenging times, and prepare for the Savior's return? May I suggest that we review chapters 6 and 7 again. And instead of focusing on the calamities and wickedness that took place right before the Savior came, let us focus on what the righteous were doing. What were the righteous doing at the exact same time to prepare for the coming of the Lord? In chapter 6, the righteous were humble and penitent before God. They were firm and steadfast and immovable, willing with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. There began to be men inspired from heaven and sent forth, preaching and testifying boldly and testifying unto them concerning the redemption, the resurrection of Christ. They did testify boldly of his death and sufferings. They testified of the things pertaining to Christ. Chapter 7, Nephi was visited by angels and also the voice of the Lord. Therefore, having seen angels and being eyewitness and having had power given unto him that he might know concerning the ministry of Christ, he began to testify boldly, repentance and remission of sins through faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nephi did minister with power and with great authority. So great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ that angels did minister unto him daily. In the name of Jesus did he cast out devils and unclean spirits, and even his brother did he raise from the dead after he had been stoned and suffered death by the people. He did many more miracles in the sight of the people in the name of Jesus. The people had been visited by the power and Spirit of God, which was in Jesus Christ, in whom they believed. Many were healed of their sicknesses and their infirmities, and did truly manifest unto the people that they had been wrought upon by the Spirit of God and had been healed, and they did do miracles among the people. Nephi did preach unto them repentance and remission of sins, and there were many that were baptized unto repentance. In summary, the people of ancient America who successfully navigated the challenges of their day in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ made and kept sacred covenants and heeded the words of a living prophet. This is where they found peace, safety, guidance, and comfort amidst the tumult of their day. They were a people who sought for the good and found it. They found it in the prophetic guidance and counsel of a living prophet. President Ezra Taft Benson testified in 1980 why it is so important that we follow a living prophet, especially in the last days. And I quote, the living prophet is more important to us than a dead prophet. God's revelations to Adam did not instruct Noah how to build the ark. Noah needed his own revelation. Therefore, 
The most important prophet, so far as you and I are concerned, is the one living in our day and age to whom the Lord is currently revealing his will for us. Beware of those who would pit the dead prophets against the living prophets, for the living prophets always take precedence, end quote. I invite and admonish you to review often the most recent counsel our living prophet, Russell M. Nelson, has encouraged us to heed. Today, I would like to focus on one of his recent prophetic priorities, which is paramount and foundational in helping us not only heed, but understand that of hearing the voice of the Lord. President Nelson warned during his first general conference address as president of the church, and I quote, In coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost, end quote. I believe it is significant that he didn't say that it would be more difficult or that it would be more challenging. He said that it would not be possible. One of my favorite things to ask children, youth, and young adults is, how do you hear the voice of the Lord? How does the Holy Ghost speak to you? I asked my niece, who at the time was the captain of her high school soccer team. She indicated that sometimes the Holy Ghost feels like a rush of adrenaline, as if she had just scored a winning goal. Another young woman who loves to surf off the California coast said that sometimes the Holy Ghost feels like a warm wave has just washed over her entire body. A young man who is an engineering major and very academic, very analytical said, Sister Wright, I don't feel anything. I said, interesting. Tell me about that. Teach me. He said the Holy Ghost speaks to him in a very matter-of-fact, common-sense, orderly kind of way. It just makes sense. Can you imagine if he had been taught his entire life that the Holy Ghost manifested himself only as goosebumps or tears or a warm feeling? He would have spent his entire life thinking that the heavens were closed and that God did not speak personally to him. This young man's personal experience with the Holy Ghost reminds me of the beautiful scripture found in Doctrine and Covenants, section 8, verse 2. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. Recently, I had a tender interaction with an eight-year-old girl named Nora. I began with the question, what is your favorite primary song? Her response was, I am a child of God. I then asked her, how do you feel when you sing that song? She said, I feel happy. I feel peace and good inside. I indicated that I feel those things too when I sing, I am a child of God. I then inquired, where do you think those feelings are coming from? She responded, my heart. I then asked her, Nora, who do you think put those feelings in your heart? 
She immediately replied, the Holy Ghost. I then followed up with, why? Why do you think he did that? She confidently declared to tell me that I am a child of God is true. My young friends, if you do not know how the Holy Ghost speaks to you, I invite you to seek out places where you know the Spirit of the Lord is present. Some of these include, but are not limited to, listening to wholesome music, studying the scriptures and words of living prophets, seers, and revelators, serving others, partaking worthily of the sacrament, and worshiping in the house of the Lord. Then stop, listen, ponder, and ask yourself, what am I thinking? What am I feeling right now? Well, I share a personal story about the importance of listening to the promptings of the Holy Ghost and having the courage to act, I invite you to ponder what this might look like in your life. What role does the Holy Ghost play in your prophetic commission to help gather Israel? Several years ago, I was the recipient of a simple act of service that strengthened my relationship with my Heavenly Father in a very profound and personal way. I was in the middle of battling an extremely aggressive cancer. One week after spending, spending three days in the infusion room, I collapsed on the couch, trembling and depleted. Several hours later, I woke up to the sound of my son coming home from school. I could not move. The bone and tissue pain had set in for the week, and blisters filled my mouth and throat. I had not eaten much that day and was starving. However, the thought of moving my mouth to chew or swallow was more than I could bear. As I laid motionless on the couch, assessing the awfulness of my situation, in my mind, I began to ask the following questions. Heavenly Father, do you know that I am here? Do you know what I am going through? Do you care? Then the doorbell rang. My son went to answer it and came back holding a 99-cent half-melted Frosty with the instructions here. Give this to your mom. It tasted amazing. It was the perfect consistency and melted just enough where I could swallow with little effort and yet still cold enough for it to be soothing as it went down. I could not believe it. I found out later that a dear friend and sister started off her morning with a prayer for me and my family. Then later that day, while driving in her car, the impression came, take Amy a Frosty now. She knew where this impression came from and acted immediately. I have contemplated often how she must have felt and the courage that it would have taken, knowing that on the other side of our front door was a family in crisis, barely keeping our heads above the water, and her offering a half-melted 99-cent Frosty. 
I did not know what I needed in that moment, but my Heavenly Father did. How grateful I am for this ministering angel who had the faith to listen to the promptings of the Spirit and the courage to act. In this final battle for souls, we need to know how the Holy Ghost speaks individually, personally, uniquely to us. And then when those promptings come, have the faith and courage to act. Doing so will not only be a tremendous blessing of peace and safety in our lives, but can also have eternal consequences in the lives of those we love. My young friends, the plan of happiness is not always happy. But we learn from Paul in Hebrews chapter 12 that this life is like running a race, a long-distance race where strength and perseverance is required, a race where the ultimate goal, the final destination, is eternal life and exaltation. As we look to Christ and run as He ran, striving to follow in His footsteps to the very best of our ability, we shall gain the victory as He did. And as we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, what will we find? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross? We will find joy. Do we think of Christ's suffering on our behalf as joyful? Do we think that our individual suffering has the potential to produce joy? Elder Neil A. Maxwell said it this way, our capacity to love and our capacity to endure well are inextricably bound together, end quote. Why? Because our capacity to love and to endure well are bound to our love of God and His Son. There is the joy. Because of Jesus Christ, because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, because of Him we can have joy. Everlasting life is everlasting joy. Joy in this life, right now, not despite the challenges of our day, but directly and specifically because of them, and immeasurable joy in the life to come. Tears will dry up. Broken hearts will be mended. What is lost shall be found. Concern shall be resolved. Families will be restored. And all that the Father hath will be ours. I testify that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is Jesus Christ's Church. And President Russell M. Nelson is Jesus Christ's prophet. Follow the prophet. He knows the way. In the sacred and holy name of the Prince of Peace, even Jesus Christ. Amen.